So that's, let's say, a timeline to producers to uh, get to know, let's say, well, if you tell me when is the most appropriate time to help me to improve marble in the position, when would be? So that would be from the last trimester of gestation up to 250 days postnatally off the calf. So that's a kind of timeline that's more uh, effective to increase the number of those fat cells inside the muscle that will be later on at the finishing phase uh, being filled with lipid and increased marbling deposition. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to this episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Marcio Duarte. He brings a wealth of knowledge and experience on skeletal muscle growth and metabolism, both pre and postnatally, and its overall impact on the quality of meat. His academic achievements include a bachelor's degree in animal science from the Federal University of Vicosa in Brazil, and a master's and PhD focused on meat science and muscle biology of ruminants. He joined the Department of Animal Biosciences at University of Guelph in 2021 as an assistant professor in meat science and muscle biology. So welcome to the show, Dr. Duarte. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. It's a pleasure to um, have that conversation and extend some knowledge today. Excellent. And I'm really excited about some of the things we're going to talk about today. I love bridging things like nutrition and muscle development. And I think that's one of the things that we're going to get to, to get into in this conversation. But before we get started, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of your origin story? How did you get to this point in your career? How did you develop a passion for the beef industry? Right. So uh, I came from a farm background back in Brazil. Uh, actually, my dad has a dairy farm, very small dairy farm, and I got into uh, livestock production because of that. Uh, I came from a small town in Brazil that it's a very strong university in agriculture and one of the best uh, animal science programs in Brazil. And that's, uh, I started my, my career and my passion about animal science since my undergrad. So I got into school and I graduated uh, in 2008. And before I finished my BS, uh, I spent a year at University of Minnesota as an internship there uh, as an extension program in agriculture. And it just boosts up my passion for agriculture. And that's when I got a little bit more about what I'm going to love and what I'm going to do uh, for a career. And then I came back to Brazil. And then I had a pleasure to be uh, advised by Dr. Pedro Vega who is a big name in the industry right now, uh, and he works at Cargill. He just moved from the academia to the industry and then uh, worked with him uh, during my master's and my PhD. It just uh, 
got me amazed about how the beef industry are big in South America. And now, now I just came up. Uh, I started as a new uh, factory back in 2014 at University of Sousa. I finished my PhD and one year of postdoc in animal biotechnology lab. And then uh, I stayed there working with beef as a model for to understand a little bit more about growth and development of the muscle and also uh, meat quality. And after seven years back in Brazil, I just decided to try something new and a new adventure. And then I ended up being here in Guelph today. Uh, what attracted me most in North America is how we can uh, get a lot of information that sometimes is a different system. It's a uh, it's different uh, production system actually here in North America compared to South America. And uh, that's what actually got me more interested to come and try to do some research down here as well, just because of the new challenges and new things that uh, I would seek as a researcher uh, using different systems. So that's a kind of short, uh, long story short, but that's how I ended up being here in Guelph and doing research using beef cattle as a model today. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy AgriSlat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit myhealthyfarms.com. Awesome. Am I correct in remembering, did you have a period of time where you were at Washington State? Perfect. Yeah. So during my career, again, um, I spent like a month also during my master's at uh, USDA Mark in Nebraska, because at that time during my master's, I was, I was just starting off understand about meat science. And uh, I started reading a lot of papers for protocols to assess meat quality. And then I contact Dr. Tommy Wheeler, and he was really helpful exchanging some information at that time. And then uh, after like 15, 20 mails I sent to him as a math student, he goes like, well, why don't you come over here and then we can teach you all the techniques you need to know. That would be a lot easier for you as well. And uh, at that time, my PI, uh, he was starting a new program in meat science in our department back in Brazil as well. So I thought that would be a perfect fit to spend some time there and bring all the techniques uh, that we need in the lab. And then I finished the, my master's and I like, I got a lot of questions when I studied meat science by itself. Like, okay, we got that as a result, but what actually makes those changes? Then that's what it brought me more towards to uh, the cell biology and molecular biology. They're like, well, that's what kind of does a lot of the job here in terms of changing uh, the traits we see in the meat. Then I decided to go over to muscle biology and uh, go using a lot of uh, molecular biology techniques to understand those changes. Then I started my PhD program, and uh, by that time I had a, an opportunity to go to Denver uh, for ASAS meeting, and I watched uh, a presentation from uh, Dr. Mindu, and it was back in 2010, and it was a presentation that ended up being uh, a review paper published in Journal of Animal Science. That's one of the highest, highest uh, cited paper, I guess. And then I got amazed by that. So that explains a lot of doubts that I had that time. 
Then I contacted him like, well, we do have an opportunity to do a research project back here. Uh, are you interested to have me as a student in your lab so I can uh, do part of my research in your lab? And he was like, yeah, why not? Then I've been, uh, I ended up being in his lab for uh, a year at Washington State from 2012 to 2011, 2012, uh, before I came back to Brazil and finished my degree there. So that was kind of whole path uh, of my master's and PhD. So I know Dr. Dew obviously has a strong reputation as somebody who's very interested in the molecular drivers of marbling. And I'm guessing that that has been one of the things that really shaped your research interest there in your lab now. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's, uh, th that's, uh, we had one really good chance uh, of being at Washington State to use Wagyu as a model for our uh, understanding of marbling development. So while I was there, uh, we came up with a research project uh, that uh, was part of my PhD, actually. And it was one of great chance to work uh, with Wagyu, which is not very common to have a Wagyu herd in universities to do research. So, uh, and then after working on his lab and I got a really good passion on cell biology and tried to understand what actually shapes the marbling development. And I have been using uh, this as one of the main cores of my research right now, yeah, for sure. I've been doing this for uh, about nine years now, <laughs> since, I, since I finished my PhD. Excellent. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about some of the specifics that you are working on in your research program right now. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it might be helpful if you could give our listeners a little bit of a 101 style lecture on um, some of the changes that are happening to the fetus during the phases of gestation. So thinking about like pre-adipocytes and, and things like that, right? And that are going to later have impact on that calf's ability to grow, his ability to marble, carcass quality, because I think that's some of the things you're going to tell us about. So maybe can you tell us a little bit about what are some of the, you know, the timeline of those changes in development and things like ha that happen during fetal development? Right. So one of the things that we usually uh, look at the cow, the pregnant cow, and trying to do some interventions. And of course, uh, nutrition is one of the most common interventions that we can do, is because during the fetal uh, development, uh, during the pregnancy, there is a lot of going on in terms of uh, commitment of different of cells that undergo either to form the muscle or to form other tissues. So, and within the muscle, we do have the muscle cells there, but we do have a lot of other cells too. And one of the cells within the muscle that are developing there and trying to get their job, uh, let's put it this way, during this time, it's uh, what we call the adipocytes or pre-adipocytes, which actually are fat cells uh, in a very early stage of life that will be later on filled with lipid and help to develop the marbling. So because when you look at the animal, during, from uh, gestation to slaughter, it's not too long. Uh, if we try to work on those animals postnatally only, mainly at the finishing phase, sometimes it's not time enough uh, for the animal to, you know, boost up and put more uh, intramuscular fat or marble in the position. That's why we end up being like, what happened during the gestation time and what is the time frame, the best time frame that you can work on at this stage 
to improve the number of these cells at that stage, once the animals are born with more cells, it's a huge probability that these animals will have more marbling at the end at slaughter. So during the, again, during the pregnancy, we usually work on three trimesters uh, stages, right? And one of the main stages that we're looking at right now is the la uh the last trimester, the late gestation, because that's when most of the other cells and also the muscle cells are already formed. So they, they're not, the adipocytes are also being formed there. But in terms of priority, the adipocytes would be le have less priority than the other type of cells developing that time. So if you take care more about the cow at this point uh, and do some manipulations on the dietary uh, changes or trying to use some um, compounds in the diet, we may be able to trigger some signals uh, on the fetuses that will be in help those cells to undergo to form more uh, adipocytes than other type of cells. So let's say uh, to summarize it, we do have the three trimesters and the very first one and the middle one is more towards to muscle development, muscle cells development. And the last trimester, it's when we have the timeline that um, a lot of adipocytes will be starting to be formed inside the muscle. And that those in those cells will help to uh, increase the marble in the position uh, in the offspring. Awesome. I think that's really useful for producers to think about that. Um, basically, the first two thirds of gestation being where we maybe have the most impact, where we need proper nutrition so that muscle, a cell deciding to become a muscle cell versus a neural cell isn't saying, well, I don't have any nutrition. I better be a brain cell over a muscle cell. Like I've, I've got limited choices right now. So you want to make sure they can make that decision versus that last third of gestation where they're starting to basically lay the future groundwork, right? If I'm a pre-adipocyte at this point, then later I can be a lipid-filled cell and that's our good marbling. And this extends beyond calving, right? So we also have, what is it, up to 200 and some days after that calf is born that we can influence some of that adipocyte development? Is that true? Yeah, is that correct? So the concept of what we call now marbling window back in 2013, uh, I had the pleasure to participate in one of the review papers that it's published as well at the Journal of Animal Science that it's a concept that shows based on the literature and a lot of research that was done by a lot of researchers here in North America and around the world that have shown that not only during gestation period, but also uh, at a very early stage of postnatal uh, period, we are able to increase the number of uh, pre-adipocytes as well. So basically, there are one population of cells that when the animals are born, they're still uncommitted uh, in the muscle. So those cells are has no job at that point. And depending on the, the signals you give to them, they can get a job as a adipocyte. Uh, so they can become uh, adipocytes. So there is one process in biology that we call hyperplasia. So in this case, uh, we're increasing number of cells. So after birth, up to 250 days, we're still able to give those uncommitted cells adipocyte jobs. So by feeding uh, the, offs the, the young calf proper properly, uh, we're still able to uh, get those cells committed to become uh, pre-adipocyte. 
So that's, let's say, a timeline to producers to uh, get to know, let's say, well, if you tell me when is the most appropriate time to help me to improve marble in the position, when would be? So that would be from the last trimester of gestation up to 250 days postnatally off the calf. So that's a kind of timeline that's more uh, effective to increase the number of those fat cells inside the muscle that will be later on at the finishing phase uh, being filled with lipid and increased marble in deposition. So when you were talking about these cells, like they didn't have jobs yet, I just pictured like our undergrad students coming to college, they don't have jobs yet, but they're, they're going to have all the potential in the world to go into a job in animal science or a job in ag business or whatever their training ends up being for them, right? So I know that this is an area you've done research on. What are some of either the nutritional strategies or other kind of strategies that you have worked on to say, okay, I've got a calf on the ground, or I'm thinking this last third of gestation, I know you've studied both of those things that can help move some of those calf cells towards making that commitment to decide to be an adipocyte. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of research that we have done before in the past have shown that the potential of increasing different uh, nutrients at the uh, the dam during the last trimester that can help the calf to improve more uh, adipocytes, uh, intramuscular adipocytes. So last year, we just finished a trial and have published one uh, research paper showing that one of the main things that we have seen so far that it's more effective it's when you work on protein and amino acid uh, diet uh, side of the diet, let's put it this way, uh, that can actually, uh, it, it seems to be really effective to give some signals to those uh, uncommitted cells to undergo to uh, adipogenesis. Uh, last year, again, one of the papers that we have published, we have seen, we learned from a trial that we did, we tried to use an increased, uh, enhanced, we increased the levels of uh, protein in the diet that it's kind of protected from the rumen and goes towards a uh, high passage um, levels of amino acid towards to after the post rumen, trying to use that as a vehicle to uh, deliver uh, somehow more amino acids to the fetuses, aiming to see what whether those amino acids are maybe uh, act as a signal for those cells to become what we need. And what we learned from that trial is that by feeding uh, high uh, rumen protected uh, protein in the diet of those cows at late gestation, we were able to see a quite nice in, uh, increase in the commitment of, commitment of those cells to adipogenesis, which means that those calves were born uh, with more pre-adipocytes and actually the control group that received the same um, not enhancement on uh, rumen-protected protein. So protein has been one of the, the things that we are looking at, but more specifically now, uh, it's that's a lot of research going on, looking at specific molecules or uh, biocompounds that can be used in the diet as well. So after birth, one trial that uh, we, I participate in collaboration with the research in Brazil. We have seen that uh, by using vitamin A very early stages of life, when the calf was born and it was injected with vitamin A, 
we were able to see a nice improvement in marbling deposition at slaughter of those calves too. So, and I know that vitamin A, it's kind of a tricky thing uh, because sometimes at the early stage of life, it does one thing that can help to improve marbling. And when you use vitamin A, high levels of vitamin A at the, at the feedlot, it can actually do the opposite. Uh, but again, that's another thing that we have seen and learned from research that can help increase pre-adipocytes at that very early stage of life. So I would say that uh, right now, specific biocompounds, there is a lot of uh, going on in the industry right now, isolated uh, amino acids and rumen-protected amino acids that can be very, very useful uh, to act as a signal for those cells to become what actually we expected to become. So I would say that in the next five years, we will be more precise on that side and actually just make global changes on the maternal diet, trying to see what happened. So let me ask you a few follow-up questions. on um, When you're thinking about having maternal diets that have more bypass protein, was that do you think it's a specific amino acid that is a part of that, like that composition of whatever you were feeding? Or do you think it's more just about, you know, excess energy availability as they're catabolizing those carbon skeletons? Is it a nitrogen signal? What do you, what do you think the mechanisms are there? So from the trial that we did, uh, what we observed that by feeding more uh, the bypass protein in the source we used at that time was uh, uh, soybean we saw that we increased a lot of the arginine uh, levels of, you know, circulating levels of arginine in the cow. And arginine is something that can really boost a lot of things, right? Uh, it acts as a signal amino acid. And also for the cow, it helps to increase the vascularity of the placenta that will actually help to deliver more nutrients to the fetuses. So it can be both. So we were not able to discern what caused specifically the change that we saw there. If it because we increase the vascularity and more blood flow to the fetus and deliver more nutrients to the fetuses, or if it was because the arginine itself was causing those signals changes uh, at the cellular level of the fetuses that you know got those cells, uh, changed their phenotype. But uh, I would say from what we learned so far, uh, by feeding them, it, it looks to me that uh, one of the main amino acids that I think we need to take care of now, that would be arginine, that can help for sure uh, improve those both sides. And uh, that's what we have been doing as a, a following up research after that now, trying to increase the arginine levels somehow in the cow and see whether there are effects on improving marbling deposition at late gestation. Okay. Well, we know there's some rumen-protected arginine products available, so there that would be you know opportunities. I'm intrigued because arginine, like you said, is kind of a complicated little molecule. It affects a lot of things. So it also has kind of a delicate balance with like nitrous oxide production, right? And so it, um, which is actually like a gaseous transmitter in the cell that can be, you know, and I, that's probably where some of that vascularity stimulus comes from, right? Like, so increasing that blood flow to the placenta. Yes. Uh, we tried once to work with argin uh, rumen protected arginine, uh, but we were not really successful in getting some source that can uh, guarantee to us the levels that would be 
protector or not. I think, yeah, I think at the industry right now, they're working on the best method to protect that specific amino acid. Uh, that's what I, I talked to some of the folks uh, two weeks ago in the conference. But what we have been doing so far, trying to increase levels of arginine, is trying to use another molecule <clears throat> that can boost uh, the biosynthesis of arginine or use some uh, other uh, compounds that can actually act as an arginine-sparing molecule. So inside of the cow, we're not feeding uh, arginine directly, but we're feeding something that can actually uh, increase the levels of arginine. And I think, uh, like you said, in, in I think it's correct to say that uh, by increasing the levels of arginine, we, we do have some uh, things going on, uh, like nitric oxide increasing that can actually act as an angiogenesis boost uh, the the blood flow overall uh, through the placenta to the fetuses. And, uh, but also, again, it can act as a specific molecule acting as a signal at the fetuses level. So that's something for the research-wise, using the livestock is quite tricky to do because sometimes we're not having much access to the fetuses itself unless we use other uh, lab models sometimes that not picture what we're looking at. But um, I think that's uh, one question that the next few years we're looking at to see if increased arginine levels, are we just improving the nutrient delivered to the fetuses or are we bringing some other signals specifically to those cells at the fetus stage that can help to increase marbling deposition? So is this some of your work with the guanidine acetate that you've been working on to work on some of the arginine sparing? So you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yep, yep. So we just finished a trial uh, a few months ago, and uh, I was fortunate to get a presentation at the conference, the American Association conference uh, two weeks ago in Albuquerque. That we have a great experience sharing some knowledge with some folks that are interested on the topic too. Uh, and we fed... Uh, those cows, we got a trial that one of the groups we fed uh, some high levels of guanidine acetate. And guanidine acetate, it's a, a molecule that can be produced itself in the organism. And for those that are uh, on the audience right now, that like, I do not know much about guanidine acetate at all. But just to, to summarize it, it's a molecule that uh, it's produced by the uh, animal organism itself and actually helps to the muscle to increase uh, some source of energy. Let's put this simple way. But it also causes some other changes too, because sometimes when you feed that molecule that was isolated and put in the diet, we not only increase that energy uh, production in the muscle, but we also uh, cause some of the metabolism changes that can save some uh, molecules like arginine. So by feeding guanidine acetate in the diet, the the organism of the animal will not utilize arginine to become uh, guanidine acetate. So we can save some arginine. And then this arginine itself can do the job that we're looking at. So that's one of the research we're doing right now. Uh, we've And that experiment, we've fed those cows guanidine acetate, and we had a control group that guanidine acetate was not added in the diet. And the, the results we got so far uh, showed us that we were able to spare arginine quite a lot. 
in those cows. And whether these uh, arginine-sparing effects will increase or do some changes at the fetus or and the calf, we're still ongoing that part of the research. But the, uh, the results we got so far, uh, we were able to see that actually it acts as we expected. And I mean, it was not a new thing. It's been done uh, on other livestock species, but it's kind of useful thing to use that approach in pregnant cows. And that's what we did at the last trimester of gestation because we're trying to manipulate in the same uh, timeline that you can try to improve the intramuscular uh, fat deposition. So that's what we have been uh, doing so far. We do start another trial like a month ago, looking at uh, guanogenacetate levels, different levels now, uh, and combined with some other rumen protect amino acids to see whether we're able to change the cow metabolism towards to what we actually want to. Yeah, I'm kind of reminded of some of the work that like Allison Meyer did up at NDSU when she was working on fetal programming using a lot of sheep models. And they were looking at things like selenium and then energy restriction and protein restriction and things like that. And if I recall, some of her work came back to showing positive effects of, I don't want to say arginine was involved in it, but it was like showing like placental blood flow differences and stuff. So it'd be interesting to think about whether like you know, testing your hypothesis in like a sheep model or something where you could get twins born and you could be able to look at one at birth and do really intensive kind of molecular studies and then have the other one to grow out and be able to look at things. I mean, I know marbling would be very different and stuff in the sheep versus calves, but just kind of interesting to see how some of the fetal programming where quite a bit of it is done kind of has been done in sheep. Right. Yeah. Well, definitely. Um, in North Dakota group, and uh, I have read a lot of papers. I follow them since I was a PhD student. And the work they have done, they're kind of amazing. And uh, we learn a lot from what they do as a research. And we use them, uh, their findings to try to, you know, evolve in our research here too. And I think that, uh, that uh, I, if I recall correctly, I think they have done some work on arginine, rumen protecting arginine on sheep model. And, uh, the only problem, we tried to use that in the past, but again, uh, some of the companies in the industry, they have the power to you know, come up with some uh, protection strategy and all the technology for that. Uh, it was quite hard for us to find you know, a product. That's why I think there is no arginine, rumen protecting arginine in the market yet. So they're trying to, to see whether there are the best method to room and protect that. So that's why we have not ended up being using uh, room and protect arginine. But some of the idea that we got for sure, it was based on their findings. So I think we need to explore a little bit about what actually happens at the molecular level. And the main idea of my research lab is trying to understand those molecular mechanisms underlying these changes. So once uh, that's our uh, focus now. Once we understand what's going on with the commitment of those cells, uh, we we can come back and say, okay, so we fit this, and that's what actually will cause those changes. Just like uh, for human now, for example, everyone know after a lot of research back in many years ago, what folic acid does, and that's why the pregnant uh, woman needs to you know supplement herself with uh, some folic acid based on what not only the changes, but the 
mechanism behind it. So we're, I think we're reaching that stage very soon. Not only my lab, but I know that it's a lot of other labs looking at the same thing right now. And I would say that in the next few years, we'll be more precise in terms of what specific biocompounds that we can use to uh, to do the job that those cells, we want to get them to, the, to be doing. So we talked about the fact that there was this window that extends beyond once the calf is born out into 250 days or so of life, where we could still influence the potential for future marbling. Um, so my next question is, as we move past the kind of fetal or the you know gestational treatments, and we've got a calf on the ground now, are there studies that you've done looking at that early calfhood potential intervention with nutrition to set them better up for success for marbling? Yeah, we, we did one trial um, trying to use one common approach that's mostly used for all the cow-calf uh, operations using creep feeding of calves to see what, what actually caused at the cellular level in terms of increasing or not uh, marble, uh, intramuscular uh, fat cells commitment. And why we use that approach, we're not looking at specifically one uh, diet or specifically one nutrient, but we just use that common approach to see because it's a common sense now that when you use creep feeding to the animals, we get better results, we get better carcasses at some point. Uh, it really depends on what we do after the cow-calf season anyway. But for those that are doing the whole thing, like from pregnant cow to get the calf on the ground and slaughter those calves later on, I think it's a useful uh, tool. So, and then uh, we use one group of cows that was crab-fed and the other, the other group was not crab-fed. And we collect the tissues from them to see for those calves to see what actually happens in terms of signal and molecular changes at the skeletal muscle tissue uh, to see by applying this uh, marbling window concept, are we able to actually increase uh, the number of preadipocytes? And what we learned from that trial is that, first of all, we did not increase uh, those uh, unemployed employed cells like that has no job that's one of the hypotheses so those calves receiving more nutrients they would increase the population of uncommitted cells those cells that has no job yet and by increasing them if they have the same ratio to go to a duplogenesis we would be increasing uh intramuscular fat deposition but it was not the case and then we questioned ourselves like okay if you're not increasing that population are those nutrients being delivered uh, triggering somehow these cells to undergo more to a gypogenesis or not? And that's what actually we saw a change there. Uh, by supplementing more nutrients to the calves, uh, very, from 100 days of age to 200 days of age, we were able to increase uh, preadipocytes, in, uh, intramuscular preadipocytes. And one of the and then we investigate a lot of molecular mechanisms behind it to see, okay, so why those cells now are going towards to more uh, to preadipocytes? And it was a lot of molecular work we've done on that trial. We just published two weeks ago that paper in Mead Science Journal. But what we learn, what I think the bottom line for the producers to re to he that hear that uh, is that we we're able to use that crib feeding system of course, to increase uh, 
better carcass, uh, to increase uh, carcass weight, to improve the carcass quality at the end. But it, everything starts from the beginning. So it was kind of proof of concept trial that we did. And actually, we saw that we were able to increase the intramuscular uh, preadipocytes by feeding them, providing them more nutrients from 100 days to 200 days of age. 250 days of age. It seems like the commonality between both your gestational work and your kind of creep feeding work is excess nutrients and or getting nutrients to that that calf at a critical time. Yeah. What we're trying to understand now is that, okay, so we're feeding them and providing them more nutrients. And the next step is like, there is any, from those nutrients, there is one specific compound that you can use. So that will be more precise than actually just overfeeding them. Uh, and, and I think that's what uh, the research is going towards now to see if you can use specific molecules like even amino acids, for example, not only feeding them more, but feeding them what? I think that's the next question now that we need to take care of by understanding how we maybe manipulate those cells uh, and what actually the signals they're showing us they are receiving by providing them a lot of nutrients. Uh, we're able to come back, okay, so let's uh, try get what they actually need only to get what we want them to do. Also, ultimately, our cattle have a lot of different depots of fat, right? So we've got intramuscular fat, which is a positive thing, and we get paid for it. We've got subcutaneous fat, which we get a higher yield grade, and we get a dock for that from the packer. Uh, but we still have to have a minimum. And then we have visceral fat, which actually can also be a negative and can actually be very metabolically active and cause inflammation and other things like that, right? So do you do we know anything about signals that say we're going to make more intramuscular fat cells, but not necessarily set up the animal to just have more back fat? Yeah, well, that's a million dollar question, as I would say, right? <laughs> because, uh, yeah, definitely that's something... For the research back in the past, I would say that, at least for me, for the back 10 years in research uh, that I have been reading and tried to come up with some hypothesis about it, I've seen a lot of uh, people with the, saying, asking the same question. How can we improve marble without increase, increasing the overall fat of the carcasses? And uh, one of the things that we're looking at right now, we just finished a trial last week here in Guelph. Uh, and we got those calves slaughtered uh, last week. Uh, that we're trying to use vitamin A again uh, because of the potential of it. And I think we know too little about the potential of it. Uh, we expanded a little bit going back. We did a trial in the neonatal calf that we inject them, like I mentioned before. But we tried to push a little bit before that. So we fed high vitamin A diets. We had pure vitamin A uh, on the diets of the cows, trying to increase and enhance uh, the commitment of those undifferentiated cells to uh, a gypogenesis. And that is based on the research done right now. It seems that vitamin A, for some reason, it's more active on those intramuscular adipocytes and actually the other adipocytes in different fat dips on the carcasses. We are still ongoing on collecting the data here, but uh, it seems that the intramuscular gypogenesis was slightly changed on the calves that came from the dams that received high vitamin A diets. It was not a big change though, uh, but 
the overall thing and the main side of the project is, okay, when you get those calves slaughtered, are we able to see any uh, quality grade increasing and not increasing the overall fats of the carcass? So that's what my student right now, she's working on the data because we just finished this slaughter uh, last week. But we, we were able to measure uh, different fat depots on the carcasses to see whether marbling or intramuscular fat was increased or thought increased the other uh, carcass fat depot. But again, uh, there is a lot of research that I was uh, involved with uh, when I was at Washington State working with Dr. Mindu and also uh, Dr. Mike Dodson. Uh, that we were able to see that uh, for some reason, intramuscular fat adipocytes, they respond differently than adipocytes from other uh, fat depots in the carcasses. So right now I would say that because of, again, all the results in the literature right now about vitamin A, we speculated that vitamin A would actually differently in those adipocytes than other adipocytes. And that's another uh, ongoing trial that we're gonna do now in vitro to see whether we are able to understand those mechanisms and how those different adipocytes respond to different signals in the carcasses. Again, that's a lot of, uh, every time we finish a research about that topic, we came up with more answers, more questions than answers, unfortunately, but that's how research goes, I guess, right? <laughs> Absolutely, I think that's always true. I wonder on, um, if some of like the cellular machinery is different between intramuscular fat cells, subcutaneous fat cells, et cetera, because like some of the work that like Steve Smith has done down at Texas A&M where they've examined like how the different beta agonists affect those different fat cells, you know, they don't like the intramuscular seem to be less at risk of being affected by beta agonists than some of the subcutaneous fat cells, which is, you know, a positive. So that we're not decreasing marbling when we use those products, but it just makes me think that there's got to be a profile that's different between those different types of fat cells, right? That's somehow, maybe it's affected by the neighborhood cells, right? It's like, oh, I've got these extracellular matrix cells around me and I've got, you know, these complex muscle fibers and it's harder to get there. There's less or more blood flow depending on the depot that you're looking at. Like, and then vitamin A itself is just kind of a tricksy little thing, right? Because it's got lots of different forms in the body and it affects everything from gene expression to inflammatory response and immune functions. So yeah, it's, uh, but it's very cool to hear the, um, the potential positive effects of vitamin A on gestational impacts on calf marbling, because we know that late gestation vitamin A is the most likely time point to have a problem with vitamin A. You know, we've either burned through the summer status boost by that point, or if it's like here and it's been brown half of the summer, my cows aren't getting much of a vitamin A boost this year. I know I'm gonna have to start supplementing it sooner during the winter. Um, so I think that's cool for producers to be thinking more holistically about the benefits um, of that, especially if they retain ownership and keep those calves. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Um, and again, one of the, I always ask myself, and I, that is one group uh, of Dr. Bradley Johnson uh, in Texas Tech that we learn a lot from the studies that he uh, lead on the seller and the cell culture uh, side of things. Because one of the things that I think it's more tricky to understand how we may be able to manipulate those cells or not, it's when you work with the live animal. Because there's a lot of uh, interference that we 
we make some a lot of assumptions at that point. That, being honest, uh, when we work with the livestock, that because you know uh, marbling, it's a trait that it's not controlled by one thing or two things, but it's like a, a lot of things controlling it. And like you mentioned before, uh, even in the tissue itself, there's a lot of going on there. We assumed uh, that it's it might be a straight effect on the adipocyte and not to the other cells and get some side effects on the adipocytes. So again, uh, Dr. Bradley Johnson, he has some uh, astonishing work on uh, using in vitro studies, in vitro models, that we kind of learn a lot uh, from what he has been publishing so far. And I think one of the things that we're missing uh, at the moment is to do some uh, in vitro studies that we can actually get more control on those cells. And the tricky thing is that to work with it, to learn about the mechanisms of it, we need to use the cells that come from the model that we are interested on, which is not an easy thing to get, uh, to isolate those cells from the livestock and get the proper cell culture ongoing. It's kind of a lot of work. Uh, it's not something that we are doing in mouse and rats. That's sometimes it's uh, more easy and more fast to do. But uh, I think that would be an additional uh, trial that we're planning to do soon is trying to use primary cell cultures to understand some of those mechanisms specifically on the cells that we're looking at right now. And by combining both uh, in vitro studies and uh, using the livestock as a model, I think we're, we may reach more uh, knowledge in a short period of time that can t get us towards to more precise nutrients that we need to add, you know, either late gestation or uh, neonatal stage that can help us to boost marbling deposition. I think this is such a great example of why, like in my research in feedlot nutrition and, you know, work like yours and others, it's so important to have these mechanism of action type experiments so that we can figure out why something happens and then we can turn around and we can exploit it in future work, right? So instead of having to waste money on overfeeding to an extra condition score or something to get these positive effects, we can instead be very precise about where we spend our money. We're going to supplement this nutrient X that has this positive effect and you can decide how much of it and you can decide on the timing of it. So I think that's so cool to see how your work is an example of this kind of going from molecular approaches to whole animal um, applications. Yeah. And uh, one interesting thing that I just mentioned just uh, reminds me of something because we always get asked by producers, for example, okay, based on uh, the work you do, uh, what do I feed my cows at late gestation? And then when you show the work and you try to, you know, tell them what you did, uh, we increase the global nutrients in the diet. So, it kind of overfed them or, you know, it's not a nutrient, one of the things. And then I totally understand that sometimes it's hard for them, like, okay, should I overfeed the cows? And what is the benefit of it? Uh, and that's something that we need to improve. And I think that what research, research will tell us in the next few years, not only provide a lot of nutrients at the time, because we already learned that we cannot restrict a cow at any moment of gestation. We cannot restrict a calf at young stages of, uh, of life because of obvious reasons. So what we're doing now, we use that to understand what actually occurs at the cellular level. And by understanding what 
what occurs at the cellular level, we understand what actually those cells need. So you go from the macro to the you know micro thing. And we're not doing trials uh, restricting overfitting, try to use that, okay, you need to overfit them. No, we are overfitting to see what happens at the tissue. And by getting those answers, we may be able to, okay, now by over, not overfitting, but if you feed one nutrient or a specific nutrient, we're able to manipulate what we want. So it's, uh, I always tell them when they get those questions, we do not have the exact answer you need right now. And unfortunately, but it's, uh, it's coming up soon, I guess. Again, if you go back in 2008, 2010, uh, for those studies from uh, all the labs that work with federal programming, for example, and by now, 13 years later, they have a lot of more focus and nutrients they're interested on, and they have shown and proved that actually does the job and not the global thing anymore. So that's, uh, I would say, again, in the next few years, we're more able to be more precise on that side. But by combining both, you know, cellular and molecular uh, biology tools, we're able to understand what actually happened in the tissue. That's, that's something we're trying to focus on to give those answers back. It's time for our famous three. Okay, well, I think we've reached that time in our interview where it's time for our famous three questions. So are you ready for these? Uh, I guess, I hope. <laughs> okay, so question number one is, what is your favorite beef resource? Well, my favorite beef resource is, uh, honestly, I'm really science reading based guy, but uh, the, the scientific journals uh, are the main source for me. But for the beef side, uh, I've been reading some beef magazines to get more tours into the industry here in Canada since I came out from a different system. So uh, beef magazines and agriculture magazines are the main source of the knowledge for myself, what's going on in the beef industry, honestly. Yeah, I imagine that the beef production system is slightly different coming from Brazil, moving to Canada. <laughs> oh yeah, I would say the main different thing is that uh, the variability. So here in North America, it's more standard production. So when you go to the slaughterhouse, we see more standard carcasses coming in with some slight changes. When you go back there in JBS, big plants in Brazil, you see nice carcass, just like we see from Angus here in North America, to the worst carcass uh, that comes from a dairy farm that is slaughter a cow that is not working properly for them anymore. So the variability there is huge. And the, it's a different system. It's a huge country, but it's doing a, an amazing job in the beef industry, I can say. So by facing more challenges, it teaches you a lot of efficiency. So yeah, it, it's different. Uh, it's not better and then worse, it's different. Absolutely. Every place has their challenges and opportunities. Yep. Okay, question number two, what is something not related to beef that you are reading or watching or binging right now? Okay, so <laughs> I've been watching a lot of, uh, one of the TV shows that I like a lot right now, watching with my kids, is something to teach them about Canada. It's uh, N with an E, uh, TV show, and my daughter, she's 10 years old, and she got amazed by that. TV show and that's what I've been watching with her because it was filmed here 
and she's learning the culture by watching that TV show. So <laughs> that's what I've been watching at the moment. That's awesome. How many, how old are your kids? Uh, ten, uh, and I do. I have a daughter at ten, and I have a, a son four years old. Um, all right. So the third and final question is: What is a trait of someone you know that you think has helped them be successful? I think it's persistence. <laughs> uh, it's kind of cliche to say that, but to succeed in something that you want, you need to have a goal uh, and you, you need to persist on all the steps to get into what you want. And that's something that I've been seeing in some of my inspirational people that I have met throughout my career. And I cannot say names here because there are a lot of them. But uh, that's one of the things that I have for those people that have inspired me so far. That's what I saw, persistence. And that's what got them in a succeed career. I'm just realizing now, but this is actually a really cool kind of way to mirror the beginning and the end of every episode because we start with your origin story and you kind of drop some of those names, right? Of who were your mentors, people that you worked with and looked up to. And then here at the end, often we hear from somebody, something about one of those mentors or something. So that's kind of a, a cool way to wrap up our, our time together here to, to be appreciative of those cool mentors that we've had. Sounds great. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, it was a great opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, what we have been doing as research and also, you know, to reach out to people that sometimes it's hard for uh, researchers and professors to get that language properly <laughs> because mainly because what we have been doing here is not a digestible thing sometimes <laughs> when it comes down to uh, producers, but I hope that helps somehow uh, for those that are watching this episode and, you know, get some answers or some more new questions that can come back to us at some point. Uh, and then we can explore as a research opportunity as well. well. Great. Thanks again so much, Dr. Duarte, for being with us today. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>